Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Joining me today is Noel Morgan, Professor of Endocrine Pharmacology at the University of Exeter Medical School here in the United Kingdom. Noel Morgan began his career with a bachelor's degree in biological sciences, followed by a PhD in biochemistry at the University of Leicester in the UK, before undertaking postdoctoral work at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, home of the Grand Ole Opry country music venue in the good old US of A. I actually went there once and uh, not a huge fan of country music, but um, certainly it was an intriguing place to visit. Noel developed a, an independent research program in islet biology while on the faculty of Keele University and was an awarded an Albert E. Reynolds Fellowship by the European Association for the Study of Diabetes. He was appointed to a personal chair at Keel and subsequently moved to the University of Exeter in 2002, where he can be found today. And in 2017, he was awarded the Dorothy Hodgkin Lectureship by Diabetes UK in recognition of his contributions to the field. Noel enjoys the creativity and joy of cooking and is eagerly trying to master the art, or I think I should say more properly, the science of baking cakes and breads. We're excited to have you with us today, Professor Noel Morgan, and looking forward to cooking up a great conversation. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. It's a real pleasure to join you, and I look forward to our conversation. And I notice you don't have a Southern American accent. <laughs> I don't, although my daughter did when we returned, much to the amusement of my family. <laughs> so tell us, first of all, what, what sparked your interest in biology and biochemistry and led you to start a career in, in medical research? And why did you choose to dedicate your research to diabetes? I, I always love people's origin stories. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I was always interested as a child in the natural world, enjoyed the countryside and um, and nature. And so taking a degree in, in biology was a natural move. I'd always also been interested in the possibility of um, helping people with disease and understanding disease. So I, I enrolled in a course that was called Biological Sciences, but I was really inspired by my biochemistry teachers, two people in particular who I thank for teaching me metabolism, which is something that a lot of people don't enjoy. I really did. Um, and it sparked an ongoing interest that I followed throughout my degree program. So I always selected modules that were had the flavor of biochemistry and metabolism. And then there was an opportunity as a postgraduate student to study uh, metabolism further in the context of diabetes. I was captivated by that and very fortunate to be offered the opportunity um, and so took it up and I've been there ever since. And we're very grateful that you have. So we're going to talk about uh, some of your contributions, but um, just m moving on, uh, crossing the Atlantic, you went to Tennessee, the South, not just home to country and Western music, as I mentioned, but, but, but for a fellow who's interested in cooking, biscuits and gravy, grits, and the astonishingly and confusingly named chicken fried steak. But also, <laughs> it's also home to Vanderbilt, an excellent university. So tell, first of all, tell us about your perspectives on Southern cooking and uh, its impact on diabetes, and tell us about your postdoctoral work over there. 
Yeah, I was delighted to be offered the opportunity to to go to Vanderbilt. Actually, uh, I'd always enjoyed country music and certainly settled in nicely to the atmosphere that there is in Nashville, which at the time I was there was a wonderful city, and I'm sure it still is, and certainly visited the Grand Ole Opry as as you've done. Um, uh, I must admit, I never took to the southern way of eating grits. Um, Porridge with sugar in is better from, from my perspective, although, as you say, Sugar can be a bit of a, 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 a an unfortunate addition these days. Um, I went to Vanderbilt partly because they have a very strong reputation in in diabetes, and partly because the Howard Hughes Institute was there, and I was very eager to use the resources available, and so I spent. Um, a little over two years, nearly two and a half years, um, studying, in fact, liver metabolism at Vanderbilt, which was one of their great strengths, and trying to understand how the liver processes sugar, how it senses sugar, and how it releases sugar into the bloodstream when we're, it's in short supply. Um, I learned a huge amount. I worked in a lab that was headed by a New Zealander, so it was a very cosmopolitan environment. There were about 30 people in the team, and it was extremely productive. Um, in fact, it was an experience that shaped my life in, in a whole variety of ways, scientifically and culturally, I think. So it was wonderful. Excellent. So um, as I mentioned earlier, you developed uh, an independent research program in islet biology at Keel University. Tell us more about that. But first of all, although our audience is predominantly medical, we do have folks who are just interested uh, lay people. So perhaps start off with a description of what the islets are. Yes, uh, islets I've always found very intriguing. Their full name, they rejoice in the name Islets of Langerhans, and they're named after a guy who first described them. They're small groups of cells which can be found in the pancreas. The pancreas is another organ that a lot of people don't recognize readily. It sits in the abdomen um, underneath the, the stomach and is sort of wound around in the intestines. It's very inaccessible. But within the pancreas are these islands of cells, hence their name, the islets of Langerhans. They're islands of cells that produce hormones. Most of the pancreas produces digestive enzymes that are released into the gut. But the islets produce hormones, particularly the hormone insulin, and that's what's responsible for controlling blood sugar levels. And it's a problem with insulin production that leads to diabetes. So that's why um, I was keen to understand them. And I had begun that quest um, in my PhD. I studied um, islets and how they secrete insulin, how they're stimulated to sense glucose and release insulin. And I wanted to continue that in my time at Keele University. I said I'd made a diversion in, at Vanderbilt and studied the liver. So I went back to the islets, very grateful to Diabetes UK, who gave me, gave me a research grant to do so. And I gradually built up a team there. And we were interested particularly in understanding how secretion of insulin is controlled and how it might go wrong in people with diabetes. Right. So 
in a similar vein, I'd like you to start at the beginning for this next one. You, your Albert Reynolds Fellowship led you to study uh, adrenoceptor signaling in beta cells at Duke University in Durham, another fine institution in the Carolinas. T- tell us about that work, please. And again, start at the beginning for the lay folk. Yes, indeed. Um, one of the most powerful regulators of insulin secretion is another hormone that folk will be familiar with called adrenaline. And it was unclear at the time how adrenaline works, but it's about the most powerful inhibitor of insulin secretion that is known physiologically. It completely shuts it down. And I was interested increasingly in how adrenaline achieves this and what that could teach us about how insulin secretion is controlled. And at the time, and probably still, the leading laboratory in the field was based at Duke University. It was headed by Professor Bob Lefkowitz, who in fact subsequently was awarded the Nobel Prize for his work in um, understanding adrenoceptors. So I applied to the European Foundation for the Study of Diabetes for a fellowship to travel to Duke and I took a sabbatical period from my post at Kiel to do so, went with my family back to the south, southern United States. And we spent time at Duke learning the molecular biology of handling and studying adrenoceptors. I then returned to the UK to put that knowledge into practice. and was very fortunate to be awarded grants by both the MRC and Wellcome Trust to take the work forward. And so we spent quite a lot of time studying how adrenaline controls insulin secretion. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, we actually discovered that there are two parts to the way that works. Um, Interestingly, there's both a stimulatory component and an inhibitory one, and they're mediated by different receptors. The first is is activated by a so-called beta adrenoceptor, whereas the inhibitory pathway is controlled by an alpha adrenoceptor. So first of all, we spent quite a lot of time understanding the pharmacology of that process and which one is predominant. And in humans, unlike in many rodent models, in humans, there's a sort of temporal sequence. So when adrenaline is released, you initially get a spike of insulin secretion from the stimulatory component And that's followed by a very powerful inhibition. And the inhibition is mediated by a mechanism that we still don't fully understand, but seems to involve a control of the actin filament system in the cytoskeleton, which stops the fusion of the secretory granules that contain insulin within the beta cells, stops their fusion and the release of insulin. So it's a very fundamental process, and it's one that we felt could be targeted potentially um, in people with type 2 diabetes if there was a way of activating the secretory pathway. So that's where our interests were, and we spent quite a long time investigating those. Okay, so you've mentioned the pancreas. As a surgeon, it's something I know where it lurks. And you're right, it's inaccessible. And of course, for again, for the lay folk, one of the reasons pancreatic cancer, when it develops, is 
is so problematic is because it, it, it's, it, it's in an inaccessible place and it tends to be quite late before it declares its, its evil presence. But you and your team, um, you've exploited the world's largest bank of pancreatic samples which were recovered at autopsy from patients who had been diagnosed with diabetes. It's called the Exeter Archival Diabetes Biobank, and it's used to study the etiology, the cause of type 1 diabetes. Can you please explain for everyone what those studies involved and, you know, what some of the results were, where it led you? Yes. Um, what I've described to you so far is our studies in, in type 2 diabetes um, and the control of insulin secretion. Emerging from those studies, we began to get an interest ever more in the way not just secretion, but the viability of the cells is controlled because it began to be clear that even in type 2 diabetes, there may be a loss of viability. But in fact, that's even more pronounced in people who have type 1 diabetes. Perhaps I should just um, outline the differences between those two. Type 1 is often thought of as a disease of infancy or childhood, although in fact you can get it at any age of life, um, and is entirely independent of factors such as lifestyle and uh, exercise and eating and so on. Type 2 diabetes, which is far more common, usually comes on later in life, although sadly is now seen in children too, and is much more related to lifestyle and um, the way we live. I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt your flow, Noel, but I think let's let's be I know in these days of being politically correct, you're not supposed to say certain things. But the truth of the matter is, you know, this is within people's control. And it comes down to what you eat. And largely that's, you know, eating a lot of a lot of sugary stuff and carrying excess weight, not not exercising. Is that fair? Yes, that's fair. Um, It's certainly not the case for all people and there are many people who get type 2 diabetes who are lean yeah absolutely but but those are you know there are people who get lung cancer who don't smoke but indeed um, indeed yeah. so yeah. I just to make that point and so and this way I can be the curmudgeon and not you <laughs> <laughs> that's fine uh, yeah I did I didn't mean to um uh imply uh any anything untoward uh thanks for, for the correction so I'm sorry to have interrupted your flow. So you were you were talking about the your, the difference between type one and type two. Yeah, fine. So so having spent quite a lot of time thinking about type two diabetes, we began to get interested in in type one and particularly the factors that might lead to beta cell death. Um, and the loss of those cells, not just the inhibition of insulin secretion, but the complete loss of the cells, which occurs in type 1 diabetes. And we were contacted at that time by a pathologist who was working in Glasgow. His name was um, Professor Alan Fowlis, and he had compiled a collection of pancreas samples that came from young people mostly, who very sadly had died soon after the onset of type 1 diabetes. And he asked us if we would like to make use of these samples to try to understand the processes that lead to beta cell loss. Now, we were very excited because such samples are incredibly rare 
And in fact, we, as you said, Jonathan, have the world's largest collection in this group. We have about 150 samples, and that doesn't sound like very many, but it is by far the biggest collection in the world from recent onset young people with type 1 diabetes. And although they come from children, mostly children, but also young people who have got the disease, they still show evidence of how the disease is progressing. And we've been using them to understand that. So we've been scrutinizing the samples to look at a whole range of factors. We've looked at the immune cells, which are the cells that attack the beta cells in type 1 diabetes. We've begun to understand how those immune cells are arranged and organized, how they mount their attack. And we've been trying to understand what the precipitating factors might be that cause the immune cells to be there in the first place. And we've got a lot of evidence that viral infections may well be an important trigger, probably not in everyone, but in a significant number of people. And so we've spent our time analysing the immune infiltrates, as they're called, the immune cells that are attacking the islets, and the viral responses that we can see in those pancreas samples. They've also taken this in a variety of other directions, but those are the key areas that we've been researching. So you, you've just hinted at that. Your group have conducted some novel studies of signaling mechanisms regulating pro-inflammatory, i.e. causing inflammation, and anti-inflammatory process in beta cells, islet cells in type 1 diabetes. That culminated in the distinction of two different types of type 1 diabetes in the pancreas, uh, which are differentiated according to the age at diagnosis. And, you know, back when I was in medical school, they, they did have electricity, but yeah, type 1 diabetes was juvenile onset diabetes requiring insulin, type 2 diabetes were, came on later in life due to obesity. And as you've so eloquently stated, that distinction, like most things in medicine, is not that clear. So tell us what you've... Uh, learnt about these two distinct types because that was news to me. Yes, thank you. Um, uh, well, yeah, uh, w one of the postdocs working in our team, a postdoc called Pia Leet, was looking very hard at the immune cells that are present, as I was explaining a few moments ago. And what Pia noticed was that in some samples that we looked at, there were a lot of cells that are called T cells, which are the killer cells of the immune system, and they were present in the islets. But there were also another group of cells, which are called B cells. Now, B cells typically circulate in the blood, and one of their main jobs is to make antibodies. And we noticed that in the islets, there were roughly equal proportions of these two cell types. But then there were other people in whom the profile was very different, and the B cells in particular were almost entirely absent. The immune infiltrates were composed almost wholly of the T cells. And so we began to separate these two out and try to understand what the differences were. And the most striking thing we noted was that People who had both cells present were almost always under the age of seven 
when they were diagnosed with the illness. Whereas those who had only the T cells and not the B cells were much older at diagnosis, typically in their teenage years. And there was an almost absolute separation of these two groups. So we began to wonder if there are actually two different disease mechanisms at play. And Pierre went on to look at the way insulin is produced in the cells under these two circumstances and began to see that there are clear differences in the way that happens too. In particular, insulin is processed from a precursor. It's called proinsulin. And in the very young children, not only is there this unusual immune cell infiltrate, but pro-insulin processing is unusual. It's, it's aberrant. And in fact, we then collaborated with clinical colleagues to show that if you measure pro-insulin in the blood of very young children with type 1 diabetes, you can see this aberrant processing. You can measure it in the blood. And so we've proposed that type 1 diabetes, as we've previously called it, is actually two different types of disease. The end result is the same. Beta cells don't function properly. But in one case, if you're a very young child, you get almost complete loss, complete destruction of the beta cells very quickly. If you're older, the process is much more protracted and it's much less effective and efficient. And in fact, the biggest surprise we had was to find that in many people who develop diabetes in their teens or indeed later in life, many beta cells survive and can be still found years and years later. And that runs completely counter to the dogma of how type 1 diabetes works. So we're still engaged now in studying these pancreas samples to try to cast further, shed further light on how we can separate these two two types of disease, how we could identify them in individuals who are developing the disease, and then potentially what that means for intervention to either slow the progression or in an ideal world to stop it. So we're excited by those kinds of studies, uh, Jonathan. That's fascinating. So um, we've mentioned the, uh, the different types of cells and there are B cells, B for beta, uh, right. And um, you've got a recent publication in, which was entitled Footprints of Immune Cells in the Pancreas in Type 1 Diabetes. And I love this to be or not to be both of them, capital B. Uh, is that is that still the question to paraphrase um, uh, the Prince of Denmark. Can you tell us about the findings of this study? Indeed. Um, yes, this refers to the fact that we found these two kinds of immune cells and that the biggest difference in the two forms of diabetes we thought we were describing was the presence or absence of these so-called B cells. So it's not, in fact, a B for beta. It's a B for a different kind of immune cell. Now, I know this gets really very confusing. Um, but So these are B cells that would normally be present in the blood and they'd be producing antibodies. Now we're pretty sure that the ones that are in the pancreas are not producing antibodies. They have a different role and actually we think 
Um, and we're still trying to gather the evidence to verify this, but we think that they may be directly presenting um, things like insulin and other beta cell proteins to the T cells that do the killing. In other words, it's as though the immune system is operating inside the pancreas to say, oh, these things are not good for you, attack them. Um, and that's why the T cells in their turn then go on to kill the beta cells. All sounds a bit complicated, but what, what this means in principle is that using an anti B cell therapy, and there are such drugs available, might be useful in particularly younger children developing type 1 diabetes. And there is some evidence from clinical trials that that may be the case. There's a monoclonal antibody drug called rituximab, which targets B cells, the cells that we're finding in the pancreas in children particularly and it depletes them and in fact in the clinical trials the youngest patients receiving rituximab had the longest um, progression before they moved on to diabetes so we feel that this might be opening up new angles that we can um, use to design improved therapies to slow the progression of type 1 diabetes. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. And when I said B for beta, I, I was actually just sort of characterizing what it is rather than it being one of the immune cells. Uh, I could have used, I should have used the phonetic alphabet B for Bravo, but there you go. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I misunderstood you completely. <laughs> now I, I, I did a poor job in framing it. Um, uh, I did read the paper. I just didn't understand most of it. No, no, don't worry. <laughs> I'm a simple surgeon. If a word's got more than two syllables, I'm, I'm left behind. So, and this is fascinating. A few years back, 2017, you were awarded the Dorothy Hodgkin Lectureship by Diabetes UK. Tell us more about what led to you receiving this award um, and, and what it's meant for your career. And Please, uh, you, you're a very humble chap, but and I, and I love how you give credit to all the other people that you work with. It's it's lovely to hear. But this is an opportunity to say the heck with that. A uh, little bit of hubris here, please. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, Diabetes UK have an annual award at their which they give at their professional conference each year, and um, they have several awards. And the Dorothy Hodgkin Lectureship is supposed to recognise someone who they believe has made a particularly important scientific contribution to the understanding of diabetes. I was overwhelmed to to be offered the uh, lectureship. Uh, in honour of Dorothy Hodgkin in 2017. And it was meant to um, recognise a significant amount of work over a long time, both in the understanding of insulin secretion that I was describing first of all, and more particularly in our studies in type 1 diabetes, which have begun to lead to the description of the two forms um, that I also told you about. So it's a very prestigious lecture, um, and it's usually given to a large audience of a couple of thousand, which is quite daunting. But I was very pleased to be given the honour to deliver that lecture and to acknowledge the, the work that I had been able to, to contribute to. So that was a great pleasure, Jonathan. Yeah, it's, um, 
you sort of named lectureships again for people who, who aren't involved. Uh, you know, when I've been very blessed to be in that position, um, I find myself looking around and think, who are they actually talking to? There must be some clever person standing behind. <laughs> so, um, Noel, we, we've got a global obesity epidemic. I mean, you know, there are certain places you fly to um, in the world, the, 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 uh, the American South, the Midwest, boy, it always struck me. I lived in America for years and you'd fly into airports like Minneapolis and it was, it was, it was horrifying, frankly. And it sadly, too much food has overtaken too little food for many people. We have to tackle this, surely. How can we do a better job changing beliefs and behaviors. I remember at medical school up in Liverpool, you know, they're very stoic people, the, the Scousers. Yeah. They're telling me I've got diabetes. They said, oh, yeah, I've just got a bit of sugar in me urine. How do we change beliefs and therefore behaviors? And what future research are you excited about? And how do you think technology will aid this research? So it's a complex question. Have at it. Thank you. Um yeah, I agree. And everyone that I talk to, including my colleagues who are psychologists and working in associated disciplines, say that changing people's behavior is one of the hardest things we can do. I think we do have to continue to try to educate people to highlight the choices that they can make. I'm certainly not one who believes that there should be a, a from the top, i.e. from government, um, insistence on particular behaviours. But I think it is um, incumbent on all of us, scientists and um, government, to make it abundantly clear to people what the outcomes of their choices might be, whether that's in relation to alcohol consumption, smoking, eating, overeating, the kinds of foods that you eat. Um, so certainly I don't underestimate the size of the challenge, but I think it's one that we have to face uh, head on. Um, because, as you say, the uh, obesity epidemic is, is ever rising. And like you, I've witnessed it firsthand in, in a number of contexts. In terms of future research, I think um, as a sort of molecular and cellular biologist, inevitably my mind turns in that direction. And I think about the technologies um, that are developing in genomics, giving us a much more um, clearer understanding of the way the bits of us that we can't see, the genes, influence the way we grow, the way we develop, the way we respond to our environment. There's been a talk for a long time about so-called personalized medicine, targeted medicine, and I think that perhaps that's where the future lies in understanding how a, a, an individual fits within their environment and how we can treat in an individual way the issues faced by particular people. So I'm excited by those kinds of technologies. I'm also rather daunted by them because they extend far beyond my expertise. But I think they will begin to change uh, the future. And we're, for example, trying to understand whether those um, genomic that genomic understanding can help us to gain a better um, cellular understanding of how type 1 diabetes works. Yeah, I mean, your comment about government 
I, I don't know the, I, I can't talk with any degree of certainty, but I've not seen government, you know, the war on drugs, think of the war, the war, yeah. the war on obesity. I mean, uh, one hospital that shall remain nameless that I worked in, uh, the University Hospital, the dean handed down a, a, a dictate that uh, the vending machines in the cafeteria that were frequented by the staff and patients and patients' relatives, that they should only contain healthy food and that the menu needed to change. And basically, the unions said, uh, yeah, no, not on our watch. Um, you're not taking our pizza and, and chips and, you know, super big gulp um, uh, sodas. Um, and so there's got to be a, a better way to do it because this is, this is, it kills people. And people need to understand it causes kidney disease. You go blind. You're going to have holes in your legs, lose your toes, be impotent, and uh, and on and on and on. And die. Yes, absolutely. And, and sometimes I've talked to folks who've lived with type 1 diabetes and indeed type 2 for long periods of time who said, if only I could have explained to people, you know, what this is like and you can't escape it. So, yeah, understood. And maybe starting with children in primary school is a good place in educating them in terms of healthy eating and the choices that they make. Well, you know, uh, Jamie Oliver, the chef, the naked yep. chef, did this thing in the UK, which I believe had some success. And then they tried to do it in the United States. And, of course, it was done as a reality TV show with those swooping camera shots and dramatic <laughs> music. And they dropped him into a little town in West Virginia, as I recall. And the whole thing was a setup for failure uh, of him doing battle with the, you know, the corporations that sell these uh, pre-prepared meals to American schools. You know, and the point was made that this was a generation that was going to have a shorter lifespan than their parents because of obesity. Indeed. Indeed. And sometimes I think we do give rather mixed messages because we emphasize how lifespan is broadly increasing and how, you know, we, people are living into older age with um, different illnesses. But at the same time, there is this overriding sense um, that in people with diabetes, certainly, um, and, and with obesity, are at risk of uh, shortening life rather than extending it. And then there's the whole blue zone thing about, yeah, you know, you can have a longer life, but, you know, you're going to have it riddled with disease. My mum died, Indeed. you know, qu uh, quite an advanced age. But other than a bit of osteoporosis, she didn't have any. She was on no medication and um, she was healthy. She, you know, she had a yes. long lifespan, but she had a more importantly, a long health span. And we need to, I think we need to do more about that. Um, yes, that's a very good point, And I take it fully. So tell me, what, what areas of current research in diabetes excite you? And what, and what are the frustrations other than a shortage of money to do research? <laughs> yes, that's always a frustration. Yeah. I think the thing that excites me most is the advent of immunotherapy. Um, in fact, we're in, a, in an an era now 100 years post insulin discovery when really our treatment for type 1 diabetes in particular has not changed at all um, but 
uh, only um, in the last month or so, a new drug has been licensed in the USA. It's not yet available in the UK, but it's an immunotherapy that has been shown to delay the onset of diabetes, type 1 that is, in, um, in people by as much as three years after a single dose. And in terms of thinking about those um, complications of diabetes that you referred to, the kidney damage, the um, eye problems, the vascular problems, heart disease, a three-year delay can make a very big difference. So I'm really excited by this new, um, new approach and the possibility that three years is just the beginning and we'll be have better and better drugs that will delay things much longer. One of the great frustrations is that we can't see the pancreas, as we've been discussing. So we can't identify easily those children who are progressing to diabetes. And that's the biggest challenge. How do we find those young children so that we can help them and intervene in the early years? Yeah. Um, yeah, of course, uh, you know, if you do a cost analysis, for um, the health system and the country or the, the payor, um, that sometimes gets people's attention. Sad that it's about money, but it's always about money. So, uh, Noel, final question. If you had three wishes, you know, a magic genie pops up and offers you three wishes to advance global healthcare or healthcare in your specialty, what, what would those three wishes be? Yeah, that, that's an interesting one. I sadly don't think I have the magic genie, but if I did, I think one thing I would uh, get them to do is to give everyone free insulin. One of the biggest barriers to the diabetes therapy in some countries still is people cannot afford to buy insulin and sometimes can't afford to buy it for their children. And to me, that's a situation that we shouldn't be in in the 21st century. So free insulin would be the first one. The second one probably... Better methods for non-invasive diagnosis. We've said several times that your pancreas is difficult to get at, but there are ways now being developed that you can image it in individuals. And if we had much better ways without getting inside the person, if we could do it externally, almost the kind of uh, Dr. McCoy Star Trek sort of um, analysis, not quite. Um, I think I'd, I'd be going for that. And the third one, maybe you'd think is a little surprising. I'd want the genie con to control malaria and schistosomiasis because they're actually among the biggest problems worldwide that we still don't have much of a handle on. So how yeah. about those three? I think they're excellent. And, you know, the point that there are many diseases in lesser developed countries that afflict huge number of, of people. And it's, yeah, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's not fair. It's tough. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for on this episode of the EMJ podcast. Thank you, Professor Noel Morgan, for speaking with us today and everything you're doing to advance the science uh, to address this wretched disease. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure and I appreciate the opportunity. Well, it's lovely having you. And as new developments occur, we must have you back. Um, so, folks, please join us next week for another fantastic episode and check out the archives. There's hordes of interesting people hiding in there. 
So thanks again for listening to the podcast. And until next time, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Please stay safe, stay well, and stay curious. Bye for now.